simple as the kid's head do. Children's Church, you can grab a copy of God's Word and open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, it's a larger section here. We're not going to get it all done this morning, but I do think it's helpful for you to see that this is a larger section, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, We'll probably just get through verse 18, 19. There's kind of a a shift there in 19, at least as far as the conversation between Jesus and a well-known story of the woman at the well. But uh, given the length of it, uh, we'll go ahead and just jump in and pray for our time and just begin looking at our message this morning. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to just gather, to look to you, to worship you, to give thanks and praise, to be reminded of the glories of Calvary. Lord, even as um, we sing a song just like we just sang, which many have sang for years, and that we cherish what a rugged cross, which had no meaning other than for torture and death, but is a symbol of hope for what was accomplished on that rugged cross for our salvation, and that Jesus is, as we see again this morning, the Savior of the world. So remind us of that truth. Encourage us with those things as we see hope, as we see the kind, gracious love of Christ extended here to an individual, which only Christ can give what he is offering, water that is everlasting, that lives and represents the eternal life, the free gift that comes through the gospel of Christ. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Well, I don't think I'll get any argument this morning if I was to lay out why we live in a polarizing world. I don't think you'd look out there and go, yeah, there's a lot of unity. If you just turn on the television screen uh, or you open up Google News or whatever news you go to, you're going to see conflict. In fact, what we saw yesterday, that there's massive conflict in the Middle East, which there seems to always be. And you saw an attack of Hamas on uh, Israel and us, like many Christians around the world, are praying for brothers and sisters there. It's so easy to be here and, and not to see the conflict face to face, but it is there and it's ever present. It's not shocking that that conflict or that attack came on Sabbath for Israel. And you see those things and it represents really one of the most long standings conflict in really human history. Yes, we have our conflicts. Yes, there is divides. Yes, there are kind of Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, even in the sports worlds, right, people can get really worked up over Saturdays and there's Hawkeyes and there's Huskers and all those things. But there are real dividing lines and there are real conflicts. As much as we think we have grown past that, an attack like yesterday reminds you that humanity is still right there with these deep divides. And as we dive deeper here into the Gospel of John, you're going to see a consistent emphasis from John to show and demonstrate, which is true, that Jesus is the Savior, not just of Israel. And this is shocking, and it's probably shocking to those who just were attacked, but even for those who would attack them, even for those insurgents known as Hamas, he died for everyone. 
at least in the way in which we understand, right? That doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, if you're a Hamas insurgent, Christ shows no partiality. And it's no greater demonstration of that than in the discussion between Nicodemus in contrast to the discussion with the woman at the well. And I would argue they're very similar discussions about very similar things which highlight the exact same need that they both have. You go back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John and we see that yes, Jesus is fully God, but for him to be the Savior of the world, he needs to be fully man as well. He needs to, verse 14 of chapter 1, that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. What is that? Among us, among the world, among humanity. Of course, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But it highlights that we have a need that is consistent no matter which nation, which kind of person that you are. We all are sinners. We've all missed the mark and we need someone to save us from our sin. There's a consistency. There's something very similar about Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Yes, there's differences. We're going to highlight some of those things. They're radical differences, but there's something that unites them in that they both are in need of Jesus. And so good news, John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world. He so loved Nicodemus and the woman at the well. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As we learned with Nicodemus, his conversation with Jesus, we must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And John the Baptist taught us that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. And with that, I find it so interesting that you come to chapter 4 and you're going to see the same word, verse 4. He must pass from or must pass through Samaria. Some translations have he had to, and it's translating that same Greek word, that idea of this is something he must do. So I just find it interesting just highlighting those simple words. That another one, we next one we come to is he must, Jesus must increase, John must decrease, and Jesus must pass through Samaria. And these seem to kind of go with his mission. What is he doing? And then if you go to verse 24, the next one we're going to see here is God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's all going to point us to that larger section. If you want to go, just skip to the end because we won't get there this week. We'll get there next week. But verse 42, it's all moving us to this big grand point that all those around, the Samaritans, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, right, John? Gospel of John, believe. They no longer believe because of what they just heard this woman at the well say, but rather... We've heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly what? The savior of the world. It's all driving us to who is this Jesus? He is the savior of the world. And the most unlikely person to illustrate this point is going to be the woman that we are going to come and meet here at Jacob's well, a promiscuous Samaritan woman. And Jesus is going to demonstrate that he is the Savior world and the only mediator who can reconcile all people to God. So let's jump in here at chapter 4. Let's look at our text and we're going to see some things about Jesus, about this story at the woman of the well. And the first thing we're going to learn here is that Jesus is purposeful, that Jesus is purposeful. 
Look at these first six verses. Kind of, it, it lays out the setting, but it communicates even more within that because he could go anywhere and yet he goes here. It says, therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again into Galilee. Just stop there and you think through this and you go, this is not Jesus being afraid. This isn't going, oh, you know what, if I do this or I make this decision, if I go to this place, there's more problems and I don't want problems, so I'm going to avoid those by leaving. Multiple suggestions actually here whether he could be leaving because he doesn't want to undermine the ministry of John the Baptist. That could be the case. I think for sure we know that there is something going on in God's sovereign plan that there's a movement to the cross and it's not his time. And so he doesn't want to cause too much heat early on in his ministry. But then we have verse 4 which says again, Jesus is doing more than one thing. He's avoiding being arrested and dying at the wrong time. He could be avoiding undermining John the Baptist's ministry. But he can do those things and seek out this woman, which is going to drive home the contrast with Nicodemus as he goes to Samaria. And it says in verse 4 that he must, he had to pass through Samaria. Now just speaking, geographically, this is the fastest way. It wouldn't be necessarily completely unheard of or uncommon that they would pass through Samaria. But if you're a really conservative, strict Jew, you would avoid and you'd go the long way to avoid going through Samaria. And yet Jesus says, I have to go. I must go through Samaria. I think because he has purposes in this. And John wants us to know that he must go through Samaria. And when he does so, he comes to a city of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And he's just giving you the context here. And you would know this, that Jacob's well was there. If you go to Israel today, you can find Jacob's well still there. And there's still a, a strong spring that flows underneath it that gives it water. And Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And so it just sets up this whole situation of what is going to happen and why it is going to happen. That it is probably six hour, if you take the Jewish calendar, that it's 6 a.m. it begins, it's about noon. It's the hot part of the day. He's tired because he is fully human and he's been walking and he's hot. And so when he comes to verse seven, this isn't shocking that he asks for a drink, but it's going to be shocking that he asks this woman for a drink. You get a little history of why is there so much animosity one commentary said this, just kind of describing, if you go back to 1 Kings 16, you see that King Omri named the new capital of the northern kingdom Samaria. And eventually that's going to be the name for that whole area. It transferred to the district of the entire northern kingdom. Because remember in the Old Testament you have the king, after Solomon, they break into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And there's animosity even there between Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom. It says, after Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 BC, they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to, this, to some form of their ancient Baal worships. And then you have after the exile, Jews returning to the homeland, the remains of the southern kingdom viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. 
And so the issue here of why is it strange that he must go through Samaria? Why would they avoid Samaria? Because it is representative of the northern kingdom, which is fallen into false worship. Not only that, but when all the foreigners came and settled, they intermarried. And so this woman would be known as someone they don't view, they couldn't give their genealogy that they're not fully Jewish. Even worse though, they established their, you could say, own Jerusalem where they went and they worshipped. And that's going to come up next week when we talk and we see the focus of worship. Because do you go to Mount Gerzim? Do you go to Jerusalem? And Jesus is going to give his answer to what he says about worship in that second part of this conversation. But Jesus could have gone around, but he goes through and illustrates this huge reason. I think it highlights a couple things when you look at just the setting here that Jesus is sovereign. As I said, that he can do more than one thing and that he is purposeful. I find a lot of comfort in that and that there are things that happen in life where I may not know all the reasons why they happen. I may even know maybe one reason that gives me comfort, especially when something is tragic that happens. But yet, at the same time, we understand that he can be purposeful. He's purposeful. He holds, as some people have called them, divine appointments. And although I think there's a lot more going on in Jesus' plan and his mission than one woman, you could say there's not less than that. And so within even his sovereignty, you start to think, well, he's sovereign, he's bigger, he's grand, he's so big, he has no care for individuals. And yet you kind of see here that in that grand plan of what the big picture Jesus is doing, he does care even for this one woman who he's going to run into at this well on this day at this hour. And so Jesus is very purposeful with the way he lives. And likewise, I think our lives are purposeful as well. And we understand that we might think we're just going for groceries. You might just think you're going on an airplane. You might just think that you are um, going somewhere and you forget that God who is sovereign puts you there in that moment and there's nothing that happens as an accident. And so understanding Jesus is purposely going yes to the cross, just recognize within that sovereign, we work out the ministry that he has given us to make disciples and recognize that he gives opportunities to each one of us that we may not see at first, but know that there's lots of things that he can do in every, each and every moment. And so he's purposeful. We learn that about him and we see that even before we meet the woman at the well, we know that he is purposeful. And what we see demonstrated with the woman at the well is that he is not partial, which makes sense because he's fully God and God is not partial. He's not swayed with how big your bank account is, how nice your house is, how nice of a person you are, how easy you are to get along with. He does not care about those things. That's not what is going to move him on one way to be nice or not nice or treat you well or not well. No, he is completely impartial. And of course, Jesus being God is also not partial. It's demonstrated here in verse 7, by the way that he treats this woman that even she is shocked by. And so we find here, verse 7, that a woman of Samaria, so he wants you to know this is a Samaritan woman, an outcast, who the disciples are going to be shocked, not only that it's a Samaritan, but even more so, they're going to say, why are it later here, we're not going to get through this today, but we're going to see it next week, that they're shocked, why are you talking to this woman? And she's shocked as well. But she comes to draw water. It's been noted that she comes, why is she coming now? It's very common that women would come in groups. It's common that women would be, because women are smarter than men, they, they would come early before it gets hotter. They would come late after the sun is going down and it's cooler. Why is she coming in the middle of the day? 
It could be she's coming in the middle of the day and she's coming alone because she is avoiding people. She's avoiding the other women in the area. It might even be because there's probably closer water to the city that she's even walking further to get outside of the city because she wants to avoid being seen and avoid causing problems. And lo and behold, all those things that she perhaps was thinking, she runs into Jesus. And more than that, she sees him sitting there. And of course, she's thinking, well, I don't want to talk to him. He's a Jew. He won't talk to me. Shockingly, he talks to her and he asks her for something. And he says in verse 7, give me a drink. And it says, why? Because the disciples aren't there to help. They'd gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman is simply shocked by the question. Because you see, the Samaritan woman, highlighted, right? You don't get her name. He wants you to know this is a Samaritan woman. That's, that's the important part of this story. It says to him, how do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink for me, for me, being a Samaritan woman? If you think you could, a little bit of, uh, redundancy here, right? They want you to know this. Emphasize Samaritan, Samaritan, Samaritan. And it says, and this could be John. Some of your Bibles have this in parentheses that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the issue here isn't so much even that he's speaking as shocking as that is, but even more so there's an issue here of being clean and unclean. So most understand this to see that when the shocking thing of this dealings, it's that you're asking Jesus, not only you're talking with her, but you're asking for a cup or a bucket that's going to be poured into a cup that she's going to give you. And when it goes from that Samaritan woman to the hands of Jesus, you're taking someone who would be, un, the Jewish understanding, unclean, giving Jesus an unclean cup of water to drink. And so she's shocked. Not only did you talk to me, but now you're asking for me to give you something. As I said, we don't quite have that one-to-one -one within the culture, but this is someone that every other Jew, she would say, probably that she's ever encountered in her whole life, views her as unclean and wants nothing to do with her. And yet Jesus says, he's got no issue. He'll talk to her. He'll ask for water. And he's going to use that to carry on a spiritual conversation, which starts maybe a little bit more in the natural world, just like Nicodemus, but he moves into the supernatural. But he shows no partiality. He breaks every normal and cultural protocol can't make Jesus unclean. That's, that's part of the lesson, as you see in other Gospels. He makes the unclean clean. But he sees people as people. He doesn't show the partiality. And that's one of the lessons here of who Jesus is. He views them as people, as humanity. We're all sinners. There's not worse. There's not better sinners, as it were. We're all the same sinners. All have sinned. All have gone astray. And we tend to be very surprised, I think, as we view people and we have preferences and this person's easier to get along with. And we start to think, well, that one's a little bit better than the other one. Well, Jesus didn't view it that way. No, he's looking for opportunities to minister, opportunities to serve, period. And here to demonstrate and show, doesn't matter if it's Nicodemus, who has the authority, the money, the reputation, the knowledge. It doesn't matter. If it's the woman of repute, who we'll see, promiscuous, multiple marriages, Jesus treats both of them in the same way, and he pursues them in the same way by showing them what it means to get into the kingdom. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's going to tell her, you're going to need to get some water. Not from that well, but living water. And in that way, he makes a free offer. Doesn't matter to who. 
makes the free offer to Nicodemus. He makes the free offer to the woman at the well. And so he is not partial in any way. Lessons for us there, for sure, with the way we sometimes think that person's more savable than the next. Maybe that person's worth spending time with or sharing the gospel with where that person is not because you might judge that person is easier to get along with or whatever it is. You don't know. And we shouldn't be thinking that way and we shouldn't be showing partiality in the offer. Rather, you share the gospel with wherever and whoever you have the opportunity with. So we learn Jesus is purposeful. He's not partial, but also we're going to see that he makes a free offer and he makes it to her just as he made it to Nicodemus. Looking at verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew, imagine just how loaded that is. If you knew who I was, if you knew what I was asking, if you knew all these things, you're going to act differently, right? And he says it this way, if you knew the gift of God, first time in the gospels, you decide this language, they said it's a gift, it's not something you do, it's something that has to be given. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, that is, you knew who I was, you knew who Jesus was, which pretty important in John, right? Jesus is the Son of God. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, the contrast there, I don't think if we had sat around and just in our own language, you'd go, what's the opposite of living? It's dead water. Well, in that culture, you, you had lots of ways to get water and one of them was not through a pipe, right? Either you're going to get it to a well that maybe is deep enough and there's a reservoir of water. You're going to a place where it's a stream that is flowing. They would have what's called cisterns where they would collect water. And if any of you have ever collected water, it is very different than water that is flowing. You get out to Colorado, you see where water comes off the mountains where it's crystal and it's beautiful and it is fresh and it's mountain spring water. It's living water. And that would be probably with her what she would naturally hear. Because she seems to be tracking, as we'll see in her response, that this is a natural conversation for her at this point. Jesus is trying to move it past, but for her, she probably would hear living water is going, okay, and there is a stream that flows underneath here, but he's trying to get a little bit further down the road with her. What he might be after it's triggering, even in the Old Testament, there's this idea of using living water to talk about spiritual truth. Jeremiah 2, 13, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so Jeremiah is saying that Israel has rejected the fresh water of God to rather go collect their own. But it isn't living. It isn't life-giving. It is stagnant. And if you have water sit long enough, it can become even deadly. It does not give life. Ultimately, it will give death. And they dug their own cisterns to reject God. There's that language isn't foreign in the Old Testament. But she doesn't seem to pick up on it. In verse 11, you can say, she says, Well, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's saying, okay, I track it. What are we talking about here? How are you going to get that? How are you offering it to me? And maybe, maybe she can give some living water because she can go down and get it. She's saying, you don't have anything. How can you give me something, Jesus? You don't have anything to draw it out. And this well is really deep. How are you going to give me this? Where do you get, she asked at the end of verse 11, where do you get this living water? Well, like many, she's trying to 
evaluate. Nicodemus, how can you be born again? How can you go back to your mother's womb? I think in a similar way, she kind of goes after him and says, listen, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And his response, trying to move this into the spiritual again, says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. So, okay, let me track. Let me give a natural analogy. Let me give you, okay, everyone is born of flesh, right? But they must be born again of the spirit. And here, you drink from Jacob's well. Maybe as good, and maybe it was, because it was a, a spring that fed that well. Probably it was better tasting water. Who knows? But I don't care how good that water is. We need water six hours later or whatever. We're, we're going to need to drink again. So everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. Ever. Just trying to pull out the emphasis in the text there. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Saying it's something that you are given that keeps continuing. It doesn't ever stop. It flows forever. That is why it represents springing up out of it eternal life. It's more than providing nourishment. It's endless flow. What is he talking about here? Well, we know from looking at John 6, it's not a secret here that I think what he's talking about is what he's talking about in John 3. He's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about new life. He's talking about cleansing, being born again in just different language. Because if you pick up in John chapter 7, you're going to see that he's going to correlate these living waters with the Spirit. John 7, he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then the explanation, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's the same subject. You be born again. The Spirit, right, blows like the wind and is the Spirit who's going to give new heart, new life, new desires. In the same way, it's going to cleanse and give life. Flowing eternal life here as Jesus explains. Well, she's tracking, as I said, with the natural side of it, but not so much with the supernatural. You could track this whole 42 verses and the way she interacts with Jesus. Because she kind of moves around here from being a you Jew, right? And then she's going to move by the end of our message today to maybe he's not just a Jew. Maybe he's greater than Jacob. Maybe he's a prophet. To, of course, she's going to proclaim he is the waited, long-awaited Messiah. But this natural illustration is simply to say, what Isaiah 55, 1 through 3 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul may live. Again, same lessons that we've seen here before. And I think you just have to note the differences between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Teacher, respected, wealthy, as authoritative and powerful as you could get in Jewish society to the woman who has no authority, no power, would be cast out. Even the multiple marriages would be, maybe they'd allow one or two, but not, not five. 
So she's as low on the social rung as he is as high. But yet they are treated the exact same. Why? Because Jesus is the savior of the world. Of both Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Of a Jew and of a Samaritan. And so as different as they are, they have something that they're born in the image, or they're made in the image, born in the image of God. But they're also, because of born of Eve, they're human, they're also sinners that need a savior. I think of Revelation 21, 5 through 6. For those of you who weren't here for Revelation, and if you want to listen to those messages, this wasn't too that long ago for us when we preached through this, but this same kind of language where at the very end of all things, he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21, 5. And he said, Write these words, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, They are done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And what does he say? He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of waters of life without cost. This is verse 10. It is a gift. It's nothing you can go buy because it's not for sale. It's something you must turn to just like Israel in the wilderness. The Son of Man must be lifted up. You must look to the Son. It's what he has accomplished. You must trust in what he has done, not in what you have done. This represents this free offer of endless source, an endless source of life, giving that the Spirit gives. Primarily, I think this is talking here about salvation and even hinting back towards being regenerated. The endless source, but I think it's even comfortable in thinking of once you are saved and you are being and growing in Christ and being sanctified. I think Paul in Ephesians calls uh, the riches of Christ, the gospel, insearchable riches. That is to say, it's not something you can exhaust. It's not something you run out of. And this is what? This is the spirit. The power of living a spirit-filled life. And I think that idea of being filled is being controlled by the spirit, being obedient to God, to his word, being transformed, Romans 12, 2 says, by the renewing of your mind. And it is life-giving and I think if you're a believer this morning, you've experienced that life-giving when you interact with the Word of God and you live and you live obedient to His Word according to the power of His Spirit. It is life-giving. And there is joy that, and peace that passes all understanding. And when we, as believers, live in the flesh, we lack joy, we lack peace. And to carry the analogy, you get thirsty you got to remember what Christ has given in his spirit. You can go back to forever and ever. It's going to give quench thirst every single time. This offer that he gives, he offers it freely. We're going to see the woman kind of changes the subject. Very similar to Nicodemus. And this question here is, what about if it gets uncomfortable? Can we, can we kind of move the subject? And maybe she goes, okay, maybe you are a prophet. And Jesus is going to shift the conversation to really, I think, attack her need and to bring her all the way back to you need this living water. Look at verse 15. It says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. 
It's hard to know exactly what's in her mind. It would seem at least she practically gets, this is a good deal. This is hard. I got to walk all the way out here. Maybe she's even thinking practically, I can avoid everybody because then I won't even have to. I get this water and it lasts forever. But I think she's still thinking the physical side of things. But she does recognize the value, you could say. This is good stuff. I don't want to be thirsty and I don't want to come back here to draw anymore. And then 16, almost out of the blue, Jesus cuts to the chase and says, go, call your husband and come back here. That's one of those, doesn't sound complicated, but in this case, it's exactly what you could say in a sentence that would make her horrified and stopping in her tracks. So I think she kind of covers it a little bit. And she answers verse 17, I have no husband. Which is one of those ways that very smart, I've got a couple of my household, very smart kids to give you the truthful answer, but not really truthful. He says, okay, you're right. She probably wanted this, but how does he know this? And he says, you've said correctly, I have no husband. And then boom, I know you and I know your need and I know exactly how spiritually thirsty you are and how you've looked for places to quench your thirst in every aspect of life. Because you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. He just fills in the blanks. And she says, and kind of, again, this is where it turns here. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. I think she wants to move this conversation elsewhere in some ways because it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. But it's this reality that I think she's going, well, I want this water, but what do I need to do? You need to believe, yes. But you also need to recognize who you are, that you are a sinner and in need of a savior. It doesn't make any sense. What are you trusting Christ for? You're trusting that he bore your sin, that he forgives you because he bore your sin. And so in this way, I think fourthly, it's this lesson here in these last few verses that no surprise, he's God. You can't trick him. Jesus cannot be tricked. I think she's trying to give a little bit of a, I'm not as bad as you think. And then he kind of cuts it and says, I know everything. We don't know. Maybe the five husbands died. I don't think that's super likely here. Probably divorced five times, now living with another man. This is somebody who is very thirsty, spiritually speaking. This is somebody who's very thirsty for purpose, very thirsty for meaning, and Jesus knows it. And it's probably the area where she struggled the most and been unsatisfied, or who knows the whole story, but I can't help but think he said exactly what she needed to hear. And when she says, I have no husband, well, it's not quite true. It's kind of like, let me hide this little thing. I don't want you to see exactly how desperate my life truly is. And he says, I know. And then the fact that Jesus knows and makes the offer and speaks to her and asks for water and then tells her the spiritual truth that he is the one giving living water makes it all the more amazing at this point. She may not be picking up on everything Again, we see the natural, the fleshly side of things. She, she at least seems in verse 19 finally go, all right, there's something different about you, Jesus. 
But I think what this portrays with her answer of, no, I don't have a husband, and Jesus' response is that there is a way in which she at this point misunderstands her true and desperate need. And it's not just physical water. It is spiritual healing that she needs. And Jesus flips the script and says, if woman at the well, since she doesn't have a name that we're not given, Samaritan woman at the well, that's the emphasis. You're seeking fulfillment in men, marriage, relationships. How's that worked out? Are you still thirsty or are you satisfied? She doesn't get it. He's talking about that deep inward longing, that thirsting for a, not just human relationship, but what God designed us for, a relationship with him, a thirsting for how do I reconcile with him? How do, am I forgiven? How do I have meaning? How do I have purpose? I think we think we can kind of trick God in thinking we're not so bad, but he knows it's part of who he is. He cannot be tricked. Me? Absolutely. You can trick me all day. I'm, I'm sometimes too trusting, those kinds of things, right? But you can't trick God. He knows all. He sees all. He sees her heart and her deepest desires, and he sees your heart and your deepest desires. And then the question is, are you finding satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone? Or are we finding it in other things, like this woman? And even as believers, part of that sanctification is not only recognizing in that moment, turning from sin, trusting in Christ, but even growing and understanding, oh, there's still things that I start to trust more, hold more dear than Jesus. And I need to turn from those things even in my understanding of who Christ is and grow and be sanctified and pursue those things. And when you do, I think you'll find that, wow, finally, I'm being fed. I'm, my thirst is being satisfied. So we learn about Jesus. He's purposeful. He's not partial. He makes free offer. And he's omniscient. You can't trick him. As we look at the beginning, we're like I said, it's all moving to this point that Jesus is the savior of the world of Nicodemus and the woman at the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a reminder that Jesus does not care. You can have the riches of Warren Buffett. You can have the knowledge of Bill Gates. You can have power of a president. He doesn't care. Married five times, you know, feel like you've wasted your life. None of those things matter. The point is, you're just like everyone else, which is every human being is thirsty. So Nicodemus, woman at the well, powerful, poor, rich, famous. Nobody knows your name. What's common? What's most important? Well, everyone made an image of God is thirsty. And he's saying, and I'm offering you water that will quench that thirst. And by the way, it's the only water that will quench that thirst. And he wants you to recognize, so if you're here this morning and that's you, he wants you to recognize your desperation that, you know what, you're right. I keep trying this and trying this and trying this and I'm not satisfied. It's because you're looking for peace and love and happiness and fulfillment in all the wrong places. Same author here, 1 John, you're after the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It doesn't satisfy. You look at those things and think, maybe, and Jesus is trying to help you go, no, trust me. That's not what quenches the spiritual thirst for eternal life. Only looking to Jesus and understanding he's the one who gives. He's the one who it is offered to freely. He will give to the one. If you say, I thirst, and you recognize your desperate need, he says, I'll give you the springs of the water of life without cost. 
And so in that way, he's calling you to the never-ending, eternal, living waters. To recognize one's sin, to repent, return from it, believe in him, trust in his work as that savior of the world on the cross. And the promise is then he will give you those springs of water that are everlasting. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful illustration for those of us who've, we understand it, we've been thirsty. And he's saying, you come to me, you will never spiritually thirst again. Father, we love that truth. We love that illustration as we think of what it is to have our thirst quenched on a day when it is hot and we have not had anything to drink, when we are parched and to have a drink from water that in the human sense is living, that it hasn't been stagnant, but it is free flowing, it is fresh, and how wonderful and how satisfying that drink is. And that Jesus picks that up and says, he's offering something so much better, spiritual living water for the soul. Encourage us this morning, not only is that what Christ has offered those who believe in him, but also it is the message that we bring to others. Even those that we may think, there's no way. Maybe look at a story like this and say, Jesus went out of his way to meet with this woman, to demonstrating there's no one so far gone, no one who is so far outcast. But yet everyone is thirsty. No matter their position, no matter who they are, they're thirsty. And we have the gospel message that quenches that thirst. And so give us hearts to, for the lost to be the ones who give out that fresh living water in the message of your son. We just ask this in his name. Amen.